Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, happy Thursday, happy day before Friday, or as we like to call it, Friday light around here. Uh, some people call it Friday Junior. Uh, it's the day before Friday. It is Thursday, and uh, we have an awesome show uh, planned for you today. Fabulous show. Steve Kim uh, will join us from Los Angeles, and we'll talk a little NBA uh, Chinese connection, a little Patrick Beverly uh, with uh, Steve Kim, and a little uh, LeBron James Jr. Bronny is in the news cycle, certainly in the Twitter news cycle, about his prom date. And uh, back with us, we have a very special guest uh, back with us in studio, uh, Troy McSwain. Uh, Troy, uh, a champion of overweight women. Uh, <laughs> well, I see you're wearing your Omega Sci-Fi gear uh, today as well, Troy. Yes. Representing the... <laughs> you, yeah, you do we, all don't, we don't bark anymore. Oh, y'all don't? No, uh, uh Is that for real? Yeah, they, they've like banned it, outlawed it in our fraternity. We don't want to be associated with the dog anymore. Are you kidding me? No. Very uh, serious. I'm about to ask my boys about that. That's the first time I've heard that. Yeah. Not that you're not one of my boys, but, you know, yeah. I'm sure they'll be happy to see uh, Omega Sci-Fi represent. Did you hear from any of your friends, your fraternity, they got anything negative to say about me today? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, we could do a whole show on that. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, uh, Betsy DeVos, former Secretary of Education under Donald Trump, she's also uh, going to be on the show today. Uh, but without further ado... Uh, I want to bring in uh, my Korean brother from another mother, the Korean Cosell, we like to call him. Steve Kim, uh, welcome back uh, to Fearless. And I want to start, Steve, I, I hope you saw this story. Uh, I find it rather interesting. On the eve of uh, the NBA playoffs, the NBA returned to state-run television in China and ESPN has written a story. I'm, I'm gonna just read it aloud here. Uh, well, th let's start with the headline. ESPN analysis, NBA owner's mom on China relationship have more than $10 billion invested there. Uh, let me just read from the beginning of this story. On the eve of the current NBA playoffs, the league's games returned to state-run TV in China after nearly a three-year ban it was a quiet return with nary a word from New York or Beijing trumpeting the apparent end of a bitter conflict. NBA owners had remained largely silent throughout the ban, even as the league worked behind the scenes to repair a ruptured relationship that had cost hundreds of millions of dollars and laid bare the complexities of doing business with an authoritarian regime. The owners had reason to stay quiet in addition to money their teams derived from the NBA's $5 billion business in China. Many have significant personal stakes there through their other businesses. ESPN examined the investments of 40 principal owners and found that they collectively have more than 10 billion tied up in China, including one owner whose company has a joint venture with an entity that has, a, has been sanctioned by the US government. Uh, there was a quote here from, yeah. This, this is a quote from Robert Kuhn, a longtime advisor to Chinese political leaders and multinational corporations in China. Quote, there, this is a significant issue and problem that American companies have. It's tension between the two poles to, to see companies promoting social justice in the United States, 
but staying silent on what we perceive to be far worse issues in China, this is going to be an issue for the rest of our working lives. I'm, I'm sitting here uh, shocked, Steve, that ESPN covered this story uh, at all, and the fact that they did makes me think, oh, how much worse the story must be than this, than what they've put out. I, I'm shocked ESPN is drawing any attention to this. Are, are you surprised? Oh, I'm stunned. And, and by the way, for clarification, aren't they NBA governors? They're no longer owners. <laughs> and, and it brings about my thought. I, I would love to see what uh, SJW at large, Draymond Green has to say about all this. He's been out front and center in his criticism of everything. But you're right. Uh, when John Hadley said, Steve, look up the story about NBA in China, and then he typed in ESPN, I, I said, Wait, are we sure about that? And even as I'm dialing in the URL, typing it in on my laptop, like you, I was stunned that they were allowed to even broach this subject. Now, the onus, I believe, is on some of the NBA writers who for the last two and a half, three years plus, have been all in on this movement about how they're more than athletes, about how they're social justice issues, and, and injustice anywhere is an injustice everywhere. Will they even broach the subject at all with anybody for the remainder of the playoffs? But I do have a question for the players uh, that were taking knees, raising fists, and doing hashtags. Do any of them, or will any of them, have anything to say about this particular subject? Well... I think it was a couple of weeks ago, Ethan Strauss, uh, who writes the best stuff on the NBA, he's got a Substack, House of Strauss, you should check it out. But uh, he wrote a piece about how uh, the NBA has tamped down its social justice stuff. It, you know, it went from having Black Lives Matter on the court to the players being a lot less vocal this year and he, he indicated it was about television ratings. Uh, I'm sure it was about the, the hypocrisy of, of this China relationship and their silence on China. And they knew, I'm sure they anticipated like, hey, we gotta get back on China run TV. And if we don't shut up about social justice warriors, yeah. when we do get back in bed with China TV, it's going to be thrown in our face. And so they have shut up in order to benefit from their relationship in China. Jason, they say there's one thing worse than a liar. That's a hypocrite. And you're right. If they take one stance in terms of a particular subject, and a lot of that has been anti-American derision since the, I would say, the spring and the summer of 2020, and they make themselves a target, and these players were taking knees, they were wearing shirts with hashtags, they did a lot of gestures. There, there still isn't any real evidence that the players in mass have made a positive social change within any of these communities. If you actually look at the crime rates and the violent crimes specifically, they've actually gone up. So I think there's a real... A realization that, oh my God, number one, we're just players. We really don't care. And number two, we only play basketball. 
we don't make that much of a difference in the grand scheme of things. And number two, I, I, and I, I'm going to veer off a little bit. I think with the recent heat on BLM and that organization and the auditing of their finances, I think everyone had to back off of that. So with that said, there, there probably became this Faustian deal like, hey, let's let's like ne pretend like we never even cared about our issues because then it absolves us about caring about any other issues. Because, again, this social justice warrior thing is really a deep dive where you now have to start to care about everything or you're going to be called out on it. I think you make an excellent point about Black Lives Matters and what's happened with their reputation as we get expose after expose about their financial malfeasance and, and exploitation of the whole BLM movement. That brand is tarnished. I'll give you another layer to it, I think, Steve, that plays into this, is Black Lives Matter and the whole Social Justice Act. That has been a Twitter phenomenon. And what has happened in the past month, six weeks with Twitter, with Elon Musk, it's th that whole little rig job of, hey, uh, there's money to be made and, and glory to be gained in bashing America and Black Lives Matter. That is all disappearing. One, Black Lives Matter is no longer. They ripped off and stolen all the white guilt money they can get. And Twitter, I think, is less supportive of that narrative now. Because one, Black Lives Matter's brand has been damaged. Two, Elon Musk has come in and is attempting to take over Twitter. And so I, I guess I'll go, and I wasn't anticipating going there, but that's why I enjoy uh, yeah. our conversation so much. I'm just wondering, are we seeing the end of the woke era? Oh, I certainly hope so. I believe the last month or so has been very, very encouraging for those who just want honest discourse. What we've had the last three to four years has not been honest. There has been a form of censorship and incredible double standards. Going back to the NBA real quickly in terms of stories that are talked about and stories that are buried. Uh, going back to Draymond Green, I don't mean to pick on him, but he's made himself a target. His best friend or one of his uh, self-proclaimed best friends and teammates at uh, Michigan State, Adrian Payne, was murdered. Could you imagine what he'd be saying if that was a white cop that did that? Uh, honestly, uh, based on his track record, he'd probably be calling for a boycott of the playoffs, sitting out. But because it was the wrong person that committed the homicide, you know, he'll give his condolences, but he won't have any outrage. I, I've always found that to be incredibly hypocritical. Also, another story that I found to be fascinating and interesting and kind of sad, Rajon Rondo pulls a gun out on his baby mama. Now, first of all, I want to say based on Rajon Rondo's shooting accuracy, the lady was never in danger. He's always been afraid to pull the trigger anyway. But with that said, that's a big story. That This is an accomplished NBA player pulling a gun out on the mother of his children. Have you really seen that story pushed out there that much, Jason? Honestly. No, uh, that's interesting. And, and it has not been pushed out. But yeah, he's an NBA champion. Uh, he just recently, a year ago, wasn't he with the Los Angeles Lakers and LeBron James? Yes, made all-star team. You know? Yeah, and and so yeah, the fact him pulling a gun and pulling basically a baby O.J. Simpson. Luckily, it didn't you know it didn't come to that. But you know, yeah, I, I do think that's a big story. 
And it, it's, again, that's why I'm suspicious of this ESPN China story, because I just think if they're willing to report this, what must really be going on yeah. with the NBA's relationship with China? If there, if there, because I just happen, I believe this is just a taste. What I, you know, 30, 40 principal owners in the NBA have 10 billion combined uh, invested in China. I, I'm not buying that. I, I, I bet you that number's closer to 100 billion. And I, I think that's why I love this story and the fact that it hit the sports world because I think it's an indication and it gives a window into how compromised our corporations, our culture, our, our business community is because of we've become this global citizen, that we've become this global society. Uh, you know, China has a lot of influence over the NBA and other corporations, and that gives them a lot of influence over our culture here in America. And I don't think people have fully understood that. And if you're trying to understand why uh, there's so much censorship, why there's so much uh, an authoritarian feel uh, to the Biden administration and the initiatives the left are pushing, it's because China is in control and is influencing all aspects of our American culture. I'm gonna segue, Steve, because you, you talked about Draymond Green and just people being outspoken. Uh, there is a guy that showed up over at ESPN in the past <laughs> week or two, uh, Patrick Beverly, who like, wow, this guy is letting it rip. He let it rip on mm. Chris Paul. I think we got some sound bites or clips. I would like to start with him going after Chris Paul for those that haven't seen it, but he was hypercritical of Chris Paul and, and his performance in Game 7 and just his performance overall. Let's play a taste of that. Man, ain't nobody worried about Chris Paul when we play Phoenix Suns. Nobody in the NBA. But what did I just say, though? And I'm just letting you know how NBA players feel and I, think. I, be, I believe you, but what I'm saying he's is— He's finessed the game to a point where he's, he, he gets— all the petty calls, all the swipe throughs at the end. I mean, this guy is out, man. We gonna be honest? We wanna be really honest? Yes. He should have fouled out. He should have fouled out. The last game, too. You see the replay against Bronson. Hit him on the shoulder, hit him in the mouth. Ref don't call anything. If that's me, oh, review it. Oh, flagrant one. If that's him, they don't call it. So let's not get it twisted, man. He should have fouled out. He can't guard. He literally can't guard. He can't guard. Yeah. He, you, he can't Chris Paul can't guard anybody? Is that what you say? I, did you see that? No, he can't. Everyone knows uh, that. Uh, excuse me, excuse me. No, no, no. I don't know that. I haven't heard anybody tell me that. You, yeah, because you haven't suited up. You know guys don't like to tell you all the truth. You know that. Because they scared, they scared, they scared what you're gonna take. No, 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 no. He's right about that. They will lie. He he's honest, they will lie. That is true. He's not lying about that. CP can't guard nobody, man. Everybody in the NBA know that. Everybody knows that. What we call them? Cone. You know what you do with cones? Like when in the summertime, you got a cone. You make a move. What does the cone do? Stay still. Exactly. Yeah. He's a cone. Stop playing, man. I Everybody that knows right. that. Everyone knows that. It's just y'all don't want to accept it because no, I don't accept that. I, I don't. Know. No, no, no. I'm saying again, if you're taller than them, you see, you can shoot over him. Obviously, that's but an give issue. him the but, Ben Simmons but, slander. Give him the PG. Give him the slander that you give everybody. So I loved it. I loved it, and I was like, wow, Patrick Beverly, coming, you know, coming hard, and it's good to finally see someone, and he's a current NBA player, he's in that 
fraternity still. I, I thought that was amazing. Uh, Matt Barnes, former NBA player, I think he's been out of the league since 2017, 2018, uh, or as Kwame calls him, Becky with the good hair. Uh, Matt Barnes had a completely different take. I think we have that. Matt Barnes went on ESPN the next day or later that day and attacked Patrick Beverly. Chris Paul is obviously going to take a lot of the blame. As Ramona said, and as Chris knows, he didn't play well from games three to seven. He played terrible, and he'll tell you that. But what I want to touch on real quick, RJ, is the disrespect I saw from Pat Beverly earlier today. You know, as, as, as reporters, you know, as part of the media, we have a job to be critical, but I think there's a, a thin line between being critical and disrespecting. And I feel like what Pat Beverly did today to Chris Paul was completely disrespectful and out of the line. And Pat Beverly's talking like he's that guy. You're not that guy, plain and simple. Chris Paul played terrible this year, and his numbers are still better than your career numbers have ever been. So I just think you have to understand, Chris is a 12-time All-Star. He played terrible. First time, or all defense nine times, seven times first team all defense. He'll be a Hall of Famer. Pat Bev and I were similar type role players. They don't talk about us when we go. They're going to talk about CP3 when he's done. And I just think the disrespect we saw earlier today on the ESPN show need to be checked because he was way out of pocket. Yeah, no, he, he, he you know that there's energy between those two. Like yep. we've seen, we've seen the push in the back. Yep. We know about all that. And yeah, sometimes when you're in this position, it can be difficult to separate professionalism yep. yeah. versus competitiveness. I mean, all he needed was the red clown nose because he was out there talking like a clown today and I just think to me again the CP is a legend in this game you know, yes, again, we were role players in this game. So have some respect for guys. He did play terrible. He'd be the first one to tell you. But the shots that, that Bev took today were just out of pocket. I know no one else is going to tell him that, so I'm going to tell him that. <laughs> mm. uh, whose team are you on here? Who are you siding with, Pat Beverly or Matt Barnes? Well, I'm part of the Bev hive because he was more petty than Richard and Tom combined. But this is the point that I want to make. And I know me and you get this all the time. Have you ever done it? Did you ever play the game? Well, here's the thing. Patrick Beverly played the game. He's been a longtime pro. He's very effective in his role. Now, I agree with Matt Barnes. We are role players, so we kind of know the hierarchy of where our status is. But this is the hypocrisy of the public and even players who always question our credentials or any credentials or the veracity of what media says about players. So you can only criticize if you're at that level. So that literally means by that standard, only Michael Jordan can really make a critique of a player. Because then it becomes a game, well, wait a minute, you're criticizing me. You only made three all-star games, I made five. Yeah, you made two all-defensive teams, guess what, I made six. Uh, you made $100 million, I made $300 million. If that's the standard we're going to have, that's a tough standard. And I've often pointed this out to boxers, and they hate when I say this. When boxers always say, well, you've never boxed, blah, 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 I don't care about your criticism. If you ever, Every time you tell them, you're right. So every time someone gives you a compliment, do you ask them, well, what are your qualifications to compliment me? It goes both ways. And I have an idea. See, I like what Beverly is doing because he's staying in brand on character. He's an absolute Doberman. I mean, he's a pit bull. He is a tenacious, kind of mean, yet funny guy. He knows what he's doing. It reminds me of Rowdy Roddy Piper, my all-time favorite wrestling heel. Yes, I watched wrestling as a kid. I want to start a show called The Bev Hive, where he basically interviews a player that he may not like, in between the halftime of a game, and he just says anything he wants. And I'd love that first guest to be Chris Pylon. 
I'd go with Pylon more than Cone and just have at it and let them <laughs> battle five minutes in between a quarter. You know, not the halftime, but in between a quarter, set up a little stage, and it'd be his version of Piper's Pit. To me, that might get me to watch some NBA more again, Jay. I'll be honest with you. That right there. All right. Do you think it's one thing to come out, guest appearance on Get Up or First Take, you're still in the NBA, uh, but do you think he has, could he be a Charles Barkley type? And again, some people will say no instantly because like, well, Charles Barkley was the MVP of the league. Charles Barkley was, you know, 13, 14 time all-star, you know, played in NBA finals, whatever. Patrick Beverly doesn't have the credentials to be the next Charles Barkley, but I don't know if it requires those mm-hmm. credentials. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't, do you think he can sustain this or will he fold after take? Look, Damian Lillard, I think, has a, had put a tweet out uh, criticizing Patrick Beverly. Bruh, on TV acting like his word law, speaking on private combos and praying, praying on MF's downfall. This weird behavior, shaking my head, I ain't got a horse in the race. That's Damian Lillard. Uh, I... I, I I, I, I wonder if he can take this kind of blowback from his peers in the league, or maybe he just doesn't care. I, I would hope he doesn't care, but let's go back to what you originally said. Um, could he be a game analyst for two and a half hours? Probably not. Certain guys, less is more. If you give us to us in shot glass, it's like, it's like great tequila. Tequila is best served in short little shot glasses. And again, you don't want too much or you wake up with a massive bad hangover. Other guys are like kegs of beer. They're meant to be consumed in large quantities. Like me and you, Jason, people want a whole keg of us. They can't get enough of us. I mean, we should be doing marathons and telethons, right? Patrick Beverly in small, short doses, five to 10 minutes at a time, it can work, and then eventually maybe you expand his role. So, again, certain guys are meant to be marathon runners. Other guys are meant to be Usain Bolt, sprinters. Here's what I think I heard from Matt Barnes and and what his criticism really means and why he wants Patrick Beverly to shut up is I think all of these guys, and and I'm not trying to be hyper-negative. I'm just trying to be real. I think from Jalen Rose... To, Pat, uh, to Matt Barnes, to uh, even Kendrick Perkins and Richard Jefferson. Not trying to. I'm not being hyper negative, but I just think they don't want the hassle of right. having to say what they really think. They don't want the hassle of having to be critical of these guys that are playing in the NBA because it's like, oh man, we might go to the same party. We yeah. might be chasing the same girl. What am I going to do when I see them out and they're upset? And again, it's it's the corrupting of the media because so many of these athletes are given platforms by ESPN, by Fox Sports, and there's a game they're playing, whereas a lot of times as it relates to journalists, Colin Cowherd, Jason Whitlock, even, you know, not I'm going to skip Bayless or whatever. Skip Bayless... Well, yes, he is because he he's a groupie for Little Wayne and just, but, but I'm just a, for me, for me and for 
other there's a handful of journalists is like I don't really care about being best friends with these athletes. I'm not impressed because you're tall. I'm not unimpressed. And there are some athletes that I do consider my friends. But I have a job to do as a journalist. And part of my job isn't being best friends uh, with these athletes and worrying about, oh my God, when, when I go to the Met Gala or whatever event, is this athlete going to be upset with me? And so that has uh, undermined an authentic conversation in sports. We got more debate shows and conversations going on around sports, but I also think we have far more inauthentic conversation going on about the sports world because athletes and other uh, groupies, media groupie, uh, journalism groupies have been injected into the conversation. I, I'm going to just go here. We look at all the female broadcasters that have been thrown into the debate conversation and, and the, they fall apart over a tweet or an email. And oh my God, look at these mean tweets. And e Do you really think they want the hassle of an NBA or NFL player questioning their opinions about uh, football or basketball? No, they don't. And that's, that's why I said the entire conversation around sports has been softened to a level that anybody that says anything that's remotely, oh my God, can you believe they yeah. did that? You know, don't, don't they know we're here to kiss the athletes we're in and make sure that when the ESPYs come around, everybody's happy to see me? Well, what did the philosopher Kwame Brown say last year? He called it to get along to go along, gang. That's exactly Get what along to described. go along, gang. Right. And a lot of these guys are with the same agency. Um, they pal around, which is fine. But you have to understand, when you get into that chair, there's a great responsibility. And let me go back to Sir Charles. The reason why Barkley is so effective at his job, and there will never be another Barkley allowed or even a guy with enough balls yes i said balls to do it the way he does is that he's made the decision i don't care if these young guys don't like me i don't care about your feelings and he layers it by never being on social media so he will never be pressured into saying something he doesn't mean if you go back to that inside the nba on tnt team a, a strange thing started happening a couple of years ago where a lot of the players would do a post-game interview with Shaq O'Neal, and they were very cold to Shaq. And I thought in the beginning Shaq was taken aback by that, and he was a little bit like, wow, these players. Then he got over it. He said, you know what? You don't like me. I don't care. And I think he became a better broadcaster for it. So now you basically have what I call the two-headed Walt Kowalski. That's the Clint Eastwood character in uh, Gran Torino the get-off-the-lawn guy that's really like he doesn't care about what anyone thinks, especially if you're younger than them, and it makes for magical TV. ESPN, they expect, and I don't know, and, and I know this from working there, and you do too, but we have different roles. They don't want you to be too critical because it is about access. And sometimes with access comes the sacrifice of being able to tell the blunt truth. The inside the NBA crew is all men. That's another difference. ESPN tends to stack its show with a female host or someone on it. 
And again, if if things are too critical and and the show is is too abrasive or too blah blah, mm. again, it puts the woman in a bad spot. Again, she doesn't want to play that rough. And again, it's like playing a game of dodgeball co-ed. It's a different game. <laughs> and that's what that's what these shows are supposed to be, dodgeball, and you try to rip each other's heads off with the dodgeball. But again, once it becomes co-ed, now you gotta bring things down a level and be more careful, and that's what has happened the entire conversation. Again, it's not a shock that Patrick Beverly goes on Get Up with Mike Greenberg and Stephen A. Smith, says what he really thinks, and then Matt Barnes goes on a show that's traditionally hosted by a woman. Uh, and again, Ramona Shelbourne was there. She wasn't the host, Richard Jefferson was. But again, you just bring it all down because you don't want to play the game at a speed that someone else can't play. If, 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 if you're on there lighting up NBA players and saying what you really think, and then you toss it over to our NFL player, and then you toss it over to Mina Kimes, she, she can't play the game at that speed. So everybody just slows the game down. That's what's happened to ESPN. Hey, uh, stick where you are. I want to take care of some business, and then we're going to talk about Bronny James. Uh, America has a meat problem because almost everything in grocery stores comes from corporate-run farms. What does that mean? Corporate farms raise huge amounts of animals in crowded, inhumane conditions, increasing the speed of animal growth through growth hormone injections. That's why you need to see our friends over at Good Ranchers. With Good Ranchers, their animals are ethically raised and sustainably sourced. They do, they do things the right way and it shows in every box. They only sell 100% American meat sourced from local American farms. That's right, you get your meat from people, not from corporations. With Good Ranchers, you will receive the best USDA prime and upper choice beef, premium seafood, and chicken that's better than organic, all at a price and quality that can't be matched by your local grocery store. And you'll be able to get all of this delivered right to you in the comfort of your home. Get your $30 discount on prime steaks and better than organic chicken. Go to goodranchers.com fearless to save on the quality you've been looking for. Use my code fearless and enjoy your box of 100% American meat and your $30 savings. Order now to combat inflation with Good Ranchers, American meat delivered. Troy, uh, let's make sure that Liz gets on GoodRanchers.com slash Fearless and gets you some of this good American meat. <laughs> I'm not joking. Don't be <laughs> laughing. I, I need y'all out there in Rancho Cucamonga supporting my spot and oh, people man. that support the American way of life. He, he must right. be making a commission off of this. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. That's not, I should have I fed you some Good Ranchers while you were here next time. Uh, let's circle back uh, to Steve. I don't know if you guys, uh, well, I know you guys have because I told you to look at it this morning. Bronny James, uh, and I, I, got, I got Troy here, uh, Steve, because me and you aren't dads. Uh, Troy has raised two sons, <laughs> he and his wife, uh, two great young men. Uh, Bronny James, uh, his uh, prom photos, it's not just one, his prom photos have made him a topic of discussion all over Twitter. Can we put some of those uh, prom photos on screen? Yeah, uh, Bronny James, that's LeBron James' uh, 
oldest son, I believe, that LeBron thinks is headed to the NBA. He's already got the right uh, kind of wife for a professional athletic career or the right kind of girlfriend. Not, and you know, Troy, you know I'm not hating. Uh, but <laughs> people over Twitter are hating. Uh, they've had a lot to say about this. And, and my take, and I'll throw it to you first, Troy, and then Steve, you, you chime in. I've always disagreed with LeBron putting his kids out here in such a public way. And this was, I don't think Bronny Jr. is any kind of real, super legitimate NBA prospect. I think he's, I think most people consider him maybe the 60, 70th best player in his class. That's not some guy that's a lottery pick or headed to the NBA uh, quickly. But LeBron has put him, his daughter, and other people out for years, has promoted them over social media. And so now, I don't think anybody should be shocked when the guy puts out his prom pictures, there's criticism. And he's been exposed to the racism of black Twitter that has been going off that this young dude went to the prom with an attractive white woman. Uh, I, I blame LeBron James for putting his kids out there as public figures uh, when, when, you know, you'd be better. I didn't know who Michael Jordan's kids went to the prom with. Yeah, well, Michael Jordan, we didn't have social media then. It wasn't as prevalent. I think part of the problem with uh, what with society today is that we've, we're really focusing on LeBron, not really LeBron, LeBronny James, not really his son. Because journalists, yourself, you guys have made LeBron out to be a selfish person. Uh, Kobe was in the media talking with Gigi, and he was supporting her. We made LeBron out to a selfish, selfish person. Because that's all you talk about. Journalists. Journalists don't talk about all the good he does for Oh, kids, my God, Troy. Everything he does. Oh Yes. He does. How else do we know? Who, who told you then about the school and everything else that he, he's but done? I mean, but it's only a bleep. You guys only talk about it for five seconds. but Because we talk about he, him as a basketball player, Troy. No, but you talk about Kobe and, and what he did with the Girls Youth Academy. You guys talk about Snoop. Snoop was on the news every day for his football league all over the Internet. But you guys don't talk about LeBron James and his school, the, what he, the $2.5 million he gives to the Boys and Girls Club. He built the Ali Museum in, in D.C. He built the Ali section uh, of that. And, and you, you did this all on your own research? The media didn't tell you this, Troy? No, the media told me that, but I'm saying, <laughs> oh, you, oh, I'm wow. saying your take on that is only, but you only give it a little bit of time. Because, Troy, if we sat here and opened this show or some show on ESPN, guys, Let's debate. LeBron gave such so and so many million to this school. It you would turn the channel. It wouldn't be a debate, but you guys don't don't even talk about that stuff. You don't even mention it. Well, all if we didn't mention it, Troy, you wouldn't know. It's all I'm saying is that you mentioned more about Snoop. The stuff and, that's interesting. We actually. Well, why is Snoop any more different than LeBron? Steve, help me out here. Troy, I had T.J. Moore and Shamika had to beat him up yesterday. <laughs> Troy, I still want to buy a new suit from you because I need a new wardrobe, but come on. Troy, most of the mainstream media have been acting as quasi-publicists for him. That's all they talk about is his good works. Now, Jason, to your point, look, I, I give Bronny Jr. credit. If you don't have NBA talent, you might as well at least live the NBA lifestyle. 
And I, I do want to know one thing, guys. Did the two sets of parents meet each other? Because based on what LeBron has said about white folks hunting everybody, that must have been one awkward meeting as they put the corsage on the dress. I would have loved to been a fly on that wall. <laughs> yeah, I, I would Troy? think they met, and I, I would think that the parents know that LeBron is BSing over Twitter and he doesn't believe half that stuff. And you know, yeah, but I think Bronny is getting is getting publicly because of his dad. I understand what you would wait. Let me finish. Go ahead. He's huh? he's. You guys have made his father out to be selfish, so he's. You're going to be selfishly. Who? Act towards what him. are you talking? Wait, I'm talking about the media. The media they made, made him so, out to be a god, Troy. No, but, Troy. but when he left Cleveland and went to Miami, everybody talked about how selfish he was. How it was a selfish act. Yes. So to me, you guys focus more on how selfish he is. So when you look at his son, you judge his son. When they talk about him at the basketball game, he's slam dunking, shooting shots, and doing stuff. That's him being selfish. They, they focus on yeah, his he loves the selfish, yeah, yeah. His mm-hmm. selfish acts, meaning LeBron's selfish acts. So all you're doing is just, is just rolling his son right in, and just rolling down the same track. So it's the dad. media. So the media is the one That's tweeting out all the racist stuff about him taking his white girl to the prom. I'm saying That's you guys are fueling it. You're fueling we're fuel, it. We're fueling it. You're fueling by how you treat LeBron. <laughs> Here's uh, Troy, though. Let me let me respectfully disagree again. <laughs> Here's the problem. They put up the tweet. I didn't know about the tweet until it became a story. And most there's not a single journalist out there that was really responding, saying, wait a minute. Why are you with the Becky Beckington? And has your father gotten to page three of the Malcolm X autobiography? <laughs> that was not happening. I would even argue that most of the perception of LeBron from the media is actually positive. Because much of his goodwill has been amplified. That's actually been covered. Also, him as this modern-day Muhammad Ali, that's actually been spoken about. So let, let's be honest about this. You're right. Some of the coverage of LeBron, I think, is actually unfair. But, Troy, LeBron has brought I'm much saying. of this on himself. Right, but that has nothing to do with his son. So why are we talking about why is, why is everybody going crazy about his son? Because of the attention right. that you his should, father has got. No, no, but you should ask the public. But, 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 you, should, you should ask Troy, the public that. The Troy. media didn't make this a big story. Troy. You do know, like, this morning we talked about this. Right. And, and I talked to someone that, that was like, hey, has he really done a good job of protecting his kids from the noise? No, he has not. And, and so mm-hmm. who, who is that? Because that's my argument that, hey, man, keep your kids out of the spotlight. This, fame is a drug. And anybody that has experienced fame should recognize it as a drug. And yes, I know some drug users, oh, they just love the high of cocaine, they love the high of weed, but I know a lot of people also that have been destroyed by their love of that high. And I see the same thing as it relates to fame. People wanna be famous, oh, I love being famous, I wanna, blah, blah, blah. And, and like I'm suggesting, that smart, self-aware people should recognize like, no, fame is a drug, it's very uh, distorting and is not healthy for you, 
And if I were LeBron James, like, well, I'm six foot nine, I'm a great basketball player, I'm stuck with having to deal with fame. I'm not going to pass that high on to my kids. It's no different than if you're overweight like me. Would I, would I, I would do everything I could to not pass gluttony on to my kids. And, and even though eating a lot or eating, overeating and eating McDonald's or, or whatever feels good, overall it's not healthy for you. Why pass it on to your kids? I say the same thing about fame. Why pass that addiction on to your kids? Well, it's a new day in the new age. When I raised my kids, it was different. There wasn't social media. And my kids were raised in a, I'm not, I was, I'm not a multimillionaire. Like one of the things I, we talked about this morning was I said, I think LeBron was wrong in where he lived, like not living in a gated community, not protecting his kids. That's true. To me, I wouldn't have put them in, in a situation where somebody could just walk up to their front door and knock on the gate. I thought that was a bad situation when he moved to Los Angeles. Um, but I think that also, I think that, that, you know, it's different now. And I think that he's trying to, he tried to find a connection with his kids. In basketball, it's hard for a father to connect with their son. It's hard enough now. With social media, it makes it even harder. So like with my sons, I, had to, I found a connection with my, one of my sons that he wanted to be a chef. So we actually own a restaurant now. Nothing to do with my business, but he came to me and said, Dad, I don't, school's not for everyone. I want to become a chef. So we did a restaurant together. So I think that, you know, I'm not really, I had to think about it, and I'm really bringing, blaming LeBron for trying to connect with his son via basketball. That was his connection. He's going to have to find a way to connect with his other kids via whatever they're into. So, you know, and that's what I'm saying. So I had to look at it a little differently as I thought about it more. I said, you know what, he's just really trying to connect to his son. And I think, and this is where it goes to the media, I think you guys are the ones that have focused on it and made him out to be selfish. Go ahead, Steve. Troy, Troy, I'll say this. Where LeBron lived in L.A., it's basically a gated community. He's surrounded by a lot of rich, affluent white people. (laughs) He's safe and secure there. And I will give you this, Troy. Uh, LeBron has been a better dad than Dwayne Wade. I will grant you that. I'll grant you that. Yeah. Damn, you had to bring Dwayne Wade in. <laughs> I'm not, t- I'm not touching you. that. Oh, God, Jay. Oh, Jay. Oh, come on. Be fearless. I'm not. I'm not no, fear- that, that is I not got, fearless. That is not I fearless. I have to be prepared for that conversation, and I'm not. Uh, you can't just throw them kind of curveballs or Molotov cocktails into the middle of a conversation. But, Troy... There are so many ways to connect with your kids. Through, like, I can remember when my father gave me the autobiography of Malcolm X. That was a way for me to read a book and connect and have a conversation with my father. Uh, I can remember uh, going to vacations and uh, fishing and taking us out, teaching us how to shoot a gun. Uh, I, I can, you know, us helping him build his bar, just no different than what you're talking about with, with your son in a restaurant. Uh, but putting fame on your kids, I'm just, I just think LeBron and other people who have experienced fame and have, should have seen eyewitness accounts are like, man, look what fame has done to 
and he, he may be LeBron, but look at all these child Hollywood stars that just go crazy. Macaulay Coughlin, Todd Bridges, you live out in LA, you can hear all the horror, st horror stories about fame. Why put that on your kids? They don't need it for the money. LeBron's gonna make more than enough money for them for the next 100 years. And so that's where I, I, I when I looked and saw like Bronny's trending and then I looked and saw why, and then I looked and saw people talking about the race of the girl he took to the prom. And I'm just, LeBron put his, he put his kids in that situation. In my, in my view. And I know you could sit there and say, no, blame the people being critical, blame the people being racist. Exactly. But, but you can't fix all of them. You can control what you do. The idiots over Twitter, I can't control them. All right. Yeah, well, I mean, Jason, I mean, you make a Give good point. Give me another one. Again, of, oh, there again, we go. I go you back make a good point. I, I go, love that. I go, <laughs> I go back to this journalist. It's y'all's fault. It's yeah. It's everybody's fault. But LeBron's done nothing. It's the media. It's everybody's fault. Oh my God. Steve, all right, Steve. I, I'm gonna. We're gonna leave the Bronny thing alone. I, I may. I may have to call Shamika in tomorrow to beat Troy up some more. Uh, but uh, don't. You're not going anywhere. Uh, I think we're gonna do an approval rating here on uh, Patrick Beverly. All right, this is just me and Steve Kim talk. We had our discussion about Patrick Beverly. I, I love the energy that he's brought to the table as a broadcaster. Um, completely disagree with Matt Barnes and people that, oh, he doesn't have the credentials. Th those are all just people that don't want to have to meet that standard of commentary. They, they want to collect a nice fat check for playing patty cake and, and kissing the rear end of other athletes. They don't, it's comical that Matt Barnes and they call their show All the Smoke and they want none of it. Uh, so uh, I've got Patrick Beverly in terms of job performance at a 23, uh, great debut. Uh, you know, I, I think I would have probably dressed him a little better uh, than, you know, the white button down shirt. But anyway, I, I, anyway, I give him a 23 in job performance. Jay, I actually gave him a quarter, the 25, because he set it off like Queen Latifah. Uh, I've never seen a player that averaged that little points go viral for being a guest host. And I, and it, I think inadvertently he set himself up for the next chapter of his career because he found himself a new career once he retires, 25. Well, 25. I don't think it's inadvertent. I think it was strategic. I think a lot of these guys, look, you read the stories about uh, broadcasters, Tom Brady's making $30 million, uh, you know, Tony Romo's making 18, Troy Aikman's blah, blah. They just know there's so much money in broadcasting now. I think this was very strategic and calculated by him. And, and that's why, as it relates to character, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of middle of the road here because I don't know enough about Patrick uh, Beverly, but I gave me a 15 in character. Mm, I actually went with a 10 because I know he's had some run-ins. He's kind of a scrappy guy. There's been some shoving and pushing incidents, so I'm going to knock him down a little bit. Uh, I gave him a 10. Uh, authenticity. 
uh, although I, I probably just contradicted myself a little bit, even though it is strategic, I think the guy's being very authentic. I think he went on TV with a game plan. Well, you know what? I'm going to talk on this camera the same way we talk in the locker room. And, you know, you know, uh, Chris Paul, ain't nobody worried about him guarding them. And I'm not losing any sleep worrying about guarding Chris Paul. I, I, I do think he was very authentic, loved it, so I gave him a 24 in authenticity. Jason, remember that classic scene in Coming to America, the barbershop scene? Uh, Eddie Murphy or Cindy Hall playing the old guys, talking about boxing, Mike Tyson, his mama name him Clay. Uh, that's what we want, right? Well, that's very authentic. He went out there and said something that's usually said in private among players to the open world. For that, I give him another 25. Mm, mm, uh, very high. Uh, it factor. I'm, I'm looking at an NBA role player that goes viral as soon as he hits the microphone. Uh, this is maybe he's a natural. Maybe he's the Eric B and Rakim. Uh, I think Rakim was the rapper. Eric B uh, uh, was the DJ. Maybe he's the Rakim of broadcasting, just a natural uh, coming straight out the gate. So I, in it factor, I gave him a 23. All right, you're saying he's Rock Kim, the greatest lyricist of all time. I'm thinking more in persona of DMX, because uh, he has no friends. He's just barking, he's getting into brawls and everything like that, although belly, not the greatest look. Uh, really good music video, that was a terrible movie. But you know what? He delivers the message well, and I like it because it resonates with his voice. I gave him a 20. All right, uh, we both have him at a smoke show. Uh, I've got mm. him at 85. Uh, you got him at 80. Uh, thank you, Steve. Uh, good job. Uh, I got to take care of some more business uh, before we go, before we get out of here. Uh, Betsy, not out of here. Betsy DeVos is going to be joining me here in a second, but let me take care of some business. What if you could have your health care put back in your own hands instead of being sold to the highest bidder? Politicians, big pharma, and health insurance companies make enormous profits at the expense of your health. That's why Crowd Health works. It's not health insurance. You can see any doctor you want, pay the first $500, and submit any bills from there. The Crowd Health community takes care of the rest. No doctor networks, no huge premiums or deductibles. Best of all, no surprises. This is a game changer in the community healthcare industry. You just pay one low monthly total. It's less than $200 a month for most people. Stop paying health insurance companies your hard-earned dollars. Go to joincrowdhealth.com now and experience freedom from health insurance. Right now, you can get your first six months for just $99 per month. That's almost 50% off the normal price and a lot less than a high-deductible health care plan. Just go to joincrowdhealth.com and use promo code FEARLESS at sign up. That's joincrowdhealth.com, promo code FEARLESS. Mandatory disclaimer, crowd health is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for health care. Terms and conditions may apply. Crowdhealth.com, joincrowdhealth.com. Uh, use the promo code FEARLESS. All right, back with uh, Betsy DeVos. Next. Welcome back. All right, uh, we're going to roll out and talk to uh, Betsy DeVos, uh, the former U.S. Secretary of Education under President Trump. Uh, Betsy has written a book uh, that's, I think, kind of hopeful about where we are in the education system. Hostages No More, 
the fight for education freedom and the future of the American child, I get the, the, the context of hostages no more means we're about to free ourselves, I believe, uh, from the leftists holding our school systems hostage and implementing all kinds of programs and things that have nothing to do with preparing our kids for the future and have everything to do with socially engineering them into being something the left <laughs> uh, can be proud of or can support a leftist agenda. Betsy, uh, welcome to the show. And am I right? Is your book hopeful? Uh, because the education system certainly has become a battleground. Are, are we winning? Well, thanks, Jason, first of all, for having me. And yes, it is a very hopeful book. It's uh, a book about the story of my fight for education freedom, for education reforms, for kids. And uh, the front row seat I've had on that for three and a half decades. But importantly, so the, the hostages no more is a reference to a direct quote from Horace Mann, who was the considered the father of our K-12 education system more than 150 years ago, where he said that educators um, should be should be feel comfortable with the fact that uh, parents their their parents are giving their children as hostages to their cause. And uh, it, you know, it, it might have been uh, well intended at the time, but we've seen increasingly in the last uh, couple of decades how uh, the cause has become increasingly uh, around an agenda that is contrary to so many kids actually learning the skills they need for a productive future. Betsy, the thing that baffles me is how did we get here? Uh, you've been in this battle and fight for a long time. It seems like many of us are just becoming aware of how far left our education system has gone and how far it's moved away from a traditional education to basically brainwashing kids. H how did we get here? Who, 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 who abandoned the education system to the point that it could experience this kind of leftist takeover? Well, I think it's been a progression for the last 50 or 60 years, but the last two years have really given families and uh, students a real front row look at what is actually going on in schools with the shutdowns, with all of the mandates, with uh, distance learning that for many, many students was a total disaster if there was any learning done at all. Uh, there was, and then, and then for many parents, parents seeing firsthand what the curriculums were that their children were getting taught, uh, they, they were in many cases appalled and justifiably so uh, that there was little rigor in the actual learning and uh, and there was an agenda in many cases that is at you know for many families very contrary to their values and so this has created a momentum for change unlike we've ever seen in previous years and it's an important moment so the book is very hopeful it's a, a lot of stories about uh, my experiences and visiting i i made a i've made a point over the years of visiting schools that are doing things differently that are focused on students and students' needs, not on adults and their needs, and uh, and trying to make the case that um, we, we all know every child is different, 
And there should not be a one-size-fits-all system, which we have, have essentially had since the creation of this K-12 model more than a, a century and a half ago. Betsy, it, it feels weird saying it, but there, as it relates to the education system, we may end up maybe two decades from now viewing COVID and the pandemic as a blessing that opened our eyes to what's going on in schools. Am I crazy for thinking that? No, I think that's very, very true. And, uh, you know, there was momentum around giving parents the empowerment and the freedom to make the choices that are right for their kids before the pandemic. But that has accelerated multiple times in the last couple of well, in this last year, uh, many states have introduced new programs, giving families more freedom. And there's many, many more pieces of legislation and policy being introduced across the country. Uh, this issue at the federal level continues to gain momentum as well, even as the left continues to defend and protect everything about the system that they have uh, you know, advocated for all of these decades. We're seeing a very, uh, a very divergent move between what the left wants for the future of K-12 education and what parents and families want. I, I, I sit, there's a lot of debate obviously around critical race theory. And I, I see people on TV, well, they're not really teaching critical race theory. You can't prove it, blah, blah, blah. And I sit and say, well, hold on. They are teaching that, oh, in order to tell an accurate history of America, you must uh, demonize America and say, you know, it was founded in oppression and things like that. And I'd look at the 1619 Project and how some schools are adopting that. And, and I see even if they're not adopting that, people are adopting the mindset of history is about oppression, not about triumph. It's not about the great things we did in America. It's about, oh, the mistakes that we made in America. And if we don't teach kids that, we haven't taught them a proper history. That, to me, is critical race theory. That if we're trying to train up a group of young people to think poorly about America and its history and its behavior, and if we don't, somehow we're glossing over the truth, I just don't know anybody that would want to raise a child that way. Who wants to focus on the negative and exaggerate the negative and never really tell the story about, here's what we did to correct the negative uh, and celebrate that. I, I just, the, the whole critical race theory thing and, and the, the mindset we're in dropping on kids, it's just a burden I never had to experience. And I'm talking about as a black kid, I was taught in school and my parents taught me, go out and conquer the world. My parents' generation fought battles for me to have a freedom and opportunity. And that was my mindset entering the workforce and entering adulthood is that I could do anything. Why wouldn't we wanna pass that mindset on to all kids? No, you're absolutely right. And uh, the you know, critical race theory is coming uh, disguised in multiple different sorts of cloaks. And uh, when we talk about trying to ban it, 
uh, we know that it's just going to pop up under another banner, another moniker. Uh, the problem has been, you know, really accumulating for m more than two decades. And that is, you know, there hasn't been a focus on teaching history accurately on uh, on civics and, and preparing young people to know and understand how their government operates and works and how, you know, what their role and their responsibility is in that. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that I think we need to collectively be calling for and demanding is really radical transparency in in all forms of education and uh, that everybody should know what their children are being taught and when and have a say in that. And we're seeing so many of them, uh, they're attempted to be shut down across the country when parents are going to school board meetings. And, and so this speaks even more to the need for empowering families to make those choices. If their school is not working for their child, if their assigned school is not working for their child, they should be able to take the resources that are already spent on that child to a school or a place that is going to work and that is going to educate them. And I guarantee if every family was empowered with this opportunity, uh, we would see a dramatic, a dramatic change in the results, in the menu of options and experience experiences that kids could have for their K-12 years within a very short period of time. And the schools and the systems that resist the change and that, you know, where the parents' complaints fall on deaf ears would be forced to change or they would lose, they would lose their constituency. And so it would be a win-win for everyone. And it would also be a win for teachers who also feel, uh, you know, constrained by a, a system that expects them to do one thing on one, you know, one uh, follow this curriculum on this page of this day. And many of them having having curriculum imposed on them that they fundamentally disagree with. But you know, back to your point about um, you know teaching history. I don't know of anyone who doesn't want an accurate, you know, view of American history and world history to be taught, all the warts and all, but also all of the good things. And you know, our country was formed to form a more perfect union, and we have continued to improve on mistakes and and change, you know, the 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 bad things we've done in the past, and put those aside, and and continuing again toward that more perfect union as a goal, and that's you know that's really what uh, we should be focused on having kids learn in their formative years to be able to again be contributing adults and to be able to exchange ideas and debate ideas, which is another area which has been fundamentally flawed in the K-12 uh, pipeline. There's very little room and opportunity for debating ideas and, and uh, you know, disagreement and how to disagree appropriately. So, uh, the, you know, the bottom line is the K-12 system we have today is not working for way too many kids, and we need to fundamentally change it and disrupt it and give families the opportunity to make those decisions and choices. Betsy, I would imagine this next question is kind of rough given your life's work. What do you say either in your book or when you're personally asked by people, hey, what about homeschooling? Shouldn't I just take my kid out of the public school system and homeschool? 
Well, homeschooling is a great option, and uh, it's actually exploded in the last year, year and a half, uh, more than double the rates that were homeschooling prior to the pandemic. And interestingly, among black families, the homeschooling percentages have gone from 3% to 15%. And that's really, I think that's that's really speaks to this whole argument that kids cannot be forced, continue to be forced into a system that isn't working for them. And the families that are able to, that are able to make those decisions because they have the resources necessary are making those choices. We need to make it easier for those families and easier for families all across the country who feel that same pressure and want something different for their kids, but cannot because they don't have the resources. I like to use the metaphor of a backpack. You know, most kids go to school every day with the things they need for the day in their backpack. We should metaphorically be putting, attaching the resources that are already being spent on that child into that child's backpack for the family to decide what school environment is going to work for him or her and what is going to be best for their family. Is there any downside to homeschooling? And I'm not talking about for the individual. I'm talking about for the fabric of America. If homeschooling becomes more and more popular and particularly among uh, married <laughs> nuclear families, if that becomes more and more popular, and so it's like uh, kids from two-parent families are experiencing a homeschool experience, and kids from single-parent families are going through a public school, could, could it potentially further divide the country? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question, but I've I've met lots of homeschoolers over the years, and I made actually a point of visiting homeschool families and consortiums of homeschool families, and find that uh, you know the definition of homeschooling can vary. For families with single parents, uh, often there's almost more of a one-room schoolhouse type of opportunity where three or four or five families get together and say, we want to, we want to have our children learn with a really great teacher and have that uh, smaller, more personalized experience. And those kinds of opportunities, I think, are going to continue to grow. Uh, some of them call them learning pods or micro schools. Whatever you call them, that personalized experience is uh, is really something that all families can could could opt into again if the resources are made available for that child and the focus is on doing what's right for that child but homeschool families that i've met over the years many of them are uh, really do work closely with a lot of other families that are uh, you know opting for that same choice for their children and uh and it, it's really been a, a really strong option and uh, and choice for a lot of families. And I think a lot it, families, no matter what, how they are headed, whether they're single parent or two parent families, should be able to make that choice if that's the right choice for their child. Betsy, what is the biggest challenge facing our education system? What should we be focused on most? Well, the biggest challenge is that the system continues to be a one-size-fits-all system for kids 
that are all very different and that have different needs for learning. You know, education is the least disrupted industry in our country. And some people bristle at the notion that education is, is an industry, but you look at all the infrastructure around education and it is an industry that has more components and pieces than many other industries do. And when you look at that and the fact that what education is charged with doing, uh, preparing the future generations to become uh, effective and contributing adults in our society, uh, it, we, we should be um, you know, really gathering around this notion that as an industry, it has to change and it has to change to be focused on what the needs are of individual children, not on what the system or adults think it needs. And, uh, and, and that has been a real dichotomy um, from a philosophical perspective with those who are in, uh, who, who succeeded me at the Department of Education in Washington and preceded me as well. When I came there, I said, our focus is going to be doing exclusively what is right for students. And, um, you know, today, there's a, a focus on the system and funding funding more and more system requirements, but not not what is right for individual kids and not giving families the kind of freedom they need to ensure their children are learning. You know, as a nation, we are not in the top 20 as compared to our peers around the world. We're not in the top 20 in results from for what our kids learn. And if we we had that same kind of dynamic in the Olympics, let's say, uh, I don't think any of us would stand for it. And so that is that has got to be the focus on totally changing the focus in education and funding students to find their right path. Betsy, thank you so much for the time. Would love to have you back. Good luck with your book. I believe it hits stores in mid-June. Uh, thank you again, appreciate it. Jason, thank you so much. All right, that's Betsy DeVos. That's tomorrow, I hear. That means we'll see you tomorrow. We want freedom. I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just.